Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Ben Vogley, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Kate Hilton, a Dartmouth 99 who is an expert in community organizing and the psychology of change. She serves as leadership faculty in the Atlantic Fellows for Health Equity Program at the George Washington University and at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, or IHI. She also recently authored an IHI white paper that established a framework for the psychology of change. Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ben. I'm delighted to be with you. First, I'd love it if you could talk a bit about your background and what inspired you to study how people create and deal with change. Thanks. Well, I think probably just my curiosity, if nothing else, in terms of my own psychology of change and learning at a pretty young age. Actually, during my time at Dartmouth, I lived and worked in Kenya. I was there on a foreign study program with the Environmental Studies Department, and I stayed on for a semester um, through the Dickey Institute and the Ethics Institute and had an opportunity to live and work in Maasai communities um, in a region called Laikipia. And I was really curious about how people's values and their interests affected their resource choices together as a community, uh, specifically looking at, um, you know, a pastoral community where overgrazing was the predominant narrative of how environmentalists looked at the community. And interestingly, um, there was this idea of the tragedy of the commons that they would um, overgraze and and the uh, environment could not sustain their livelihoods as pastoralists. And in fact, that's not what was happening. There was um, uh, leadership exercised by elders, by warriors, by women, who together were making choices around how to self-govern and govern the commons. And so they did that through their values and through their interests and through their belief systems. And that um, propelled my ongoing work, uh, which led me to Harvard Divinity School, And there I discovered there were very few leaders like those that I had encountered in the field. In fact, um, I felt there was a big disparity and an equity gap Mm -hmm. between representation at Harvard and the types of people who had taught me um, what leadership looked like. And so I, um, I started with many other students, a conference to bring folks like the, those that I worked with in Lycipia to come to Harvard and share their experience and stories. And as I did that, Ben, I was terrible at leadership. I stood in front of the room. I was really great at getting people fired up and into the room. But once we got in there, I was, um, you know, I guess I was just sort of downloading in my own mind's eye this idea that leadership is like standing at the front and um, telling people what to do. And, you know, basically I was, you know, leaning into my own bossy and controlling tendencies. And within a few meetings, the students who had been really excited were no longer excited and, uh, and said, you know, we're not going to stick with this because we, we just don't like how it's being organized. And I felt absolutely crushed. But I was so, so lucky because I was working with a professor named Marshall Gans, who teaches community organizing at Harvard Kennedy School. He's a longtime community organizer. He worked with Cesar Chavez for over 20 years in the farm workers movement, civil rights leader. And he uh, mentored me through these challenges. And I can remember sitting across from him and having him look at me and say, um, you know, 
like just shaking his head at me. Uh, you, you have to get out of your own way. And I didn't know how to change. So I asked him, you know, could, could you tell me what to do here? And he said, are there other leaders who could help lead a collective decision-making process where the students involved in this are deciding what it looks like, what its purpose is, um, how they want to go about defining it for themselves. And I remember standing at the back of the room and, and letting another student lead and being really scared that people didn't have the same ideas that I did. And turns out they didn't. They had much better ideas than I did. And pretty soon they felt their own agency activated. And so as I created more and more space for others, I saw that, um, you know, instead of trying to com compel them or persuade them or make them comply to my will, um, you know, I was instead activating their commitment on the basis of their agency, their own power, their own courage to act. And they did so many amazing things. And it was just my first taste of what my own transformation could look like and what the transformation of others could look like. And that was wholly energizing. Um, and really from there, I've continued my work with Marshall and then applied that in the health sector in particular and, and continued my own trajectory into change. But um, I love working with people who are experiencing their own transformation and growth. And I, yeah. uh, I really appreciate um, you know, being a part of their journey. So what is the psychology of change? The psychology of change is, um, it's basically a human-centered approach to understanding what we experience when we encounter change, both internally uh, in ourselves, in our, in our bodies, in our minds, our feelings, uh, our thoughts, as well as we encounter others. So um, those can also be external triggers and environments um, that affect the ways in which we may feel. Um, and as leaders, it's very important not only to understand our own psychology when we encounter change, but certainly to encounter that of others, since primarily our responsibility is to enable others to achieve purpose in the face of what is always an uncertain future. And so yeah. it, you know, as leaders, it's critical that we're, um, we're mindful of the experience of change because usually we're asking people to go from zero to 60 and we're already at 60 and most people are maybe ready to move to six. And so um, understanding, empathizing, exploring and inviting them to, to sort of solve their own problems around change to help keep them solved uh, is uh, at least in my own experience, um, a great way to go. In your white paper, you describe activating people's agency as an important way to create change. What do you mean by this and how is it helpful? Well, when we look at agency, we can break it down into two parts. So one part is an individual or a group's power, right? Our ability to act with purpose, our ability to act with purpose. But we can have all the power in the world, the knowledge, the, the skills to bring about change without the second part, which is courage or the emotional resources to choose to act in the first place. So you need to have the emotional resources yeah. to take action and together with that, the power um, to, you know, to create the change you seek. And that may be on your own. It may be together with others. It may be within an organization or system. Um and so activating people's agency means paying very mindful attention to what it's going to take to build that power and what it's going to take to create conditions for courage. 
All right. And, you know, during this pandemic, a lot is being asked of people in terms of changing their own day-to-day behaviors. I'm thinking of social distancing, mask wearing, and, and so on. And I'm wondering if you see this insight about unlocking people's agency as being relevant in this situation. And if so, I'm wondering how it could be used to encourage people to make these important and necessary lifestyle changes. Absolutely central to this kind of day-to-day change, this um, what we call um, sort of the agility that we all need for adaptive change, right? So not technical change, like a vaccine would be a technical innovation that allows us to solve this problem. Instead, we have to have adaptive experimentation by all of us as stakeholders in this, which requires learning. And as part of that, um, I like to think a lot about William Bridges' work. He was an organizational um, management uh, expert, and he he talks a lot about transition and looking at change and the psychology of change, similar to how we look at grief. Grief has various stages that we pass through in our psychological experience of loss. And when we encounter change, we similarly have four stages. The first is denial, denial that the change is needed. Um, That can be experienced as shock, for example, that a pandemic is occurring. Um, The second stage is resistance. And that's where our anger and frustration, our fear of loss, uncertainty, our bargaining instincts, those all kick in. And so you, you may have encountered resistance around, you know, taking classes online or working with your colleagues virtually or homeschooling your children or staying at home when you want to go out, um, not being with friends, et cetera. And so resistance is sort of that place where we're moving in the psychology of change. We want to move people from resistance into exploration. I will say one thing. We should expect it, right? So as leaders we and as human beings, we should expect to experience resistance when we encounter change. And it's not a bad thing. So part of the mindset is not to get angry at the resistors or the resistance. It's to see it. And I like to say to hug it. Hug that resistance because that's you know, empathy and the love towards it. Um, it's not going to go away. We just have to to work with it and move to the third stage, which is exploration. So that's where we start to experiment, where we're testing day to day what it's like to homeschool, how to get better at it, what it's like to work virtually, what it's like to um, uh, quarantine. And this is where we begin to see some some hope, some acceptance of what's happening. Um, Now, it doesn't mean that this is totally linear. You can move into exploration and go right back into resistance, right? This isn't, um, you can experience both at the same time around different parts of the change you're encountering. Um, So to be mindful that, you know, we're complex human beings. Um, And then the last stage is as we move from exploration, we move toward commitment. And that's where we've integrated a new way uh, of understanding and of integrating new behaviors of change into our day-to-day lives. And that's where we can get an entire system or an organization or a team that we're leading, for example, let's say, um, to a place of a new behavior that we we maybe had envisioned and hoped for when we began uh, the change process. And it's interesting to hear about the psychology of change working on an individual level, but I'm curious about, I'd love it basically if you could articulate how this translates to systemic change. Sure. Well, it's really, really important to acknowledge that systems are made up of people 
and that decisions that we make individually and collectively as groups um, affect then how a system functions. A system is a set of processes, procedures, policies that create an environment of um, limitations or of opportunities uh, within which we we work or we live um, or we receive a service or what whatever that system is built to do. And um, And so I would note that fundamentally the psychology of change occurs at the individual and collective levels but it's it's at those levels that people create systemic processes and so on um and so um that that's the interrelationship between the two yeah in your white paper you mention distributing power as a very important way to allow change within an organization but you also mention that sometimes leaders can have a difficult time engaging in power sharing. And I was wondering if you had any tips to allow an organization to distribute power effectively. Yeah, power is tough, right? So, and we also have to kind of get clear on what we even mean when we talk about power, because it's a very loaded term. Um, So the way in which I see power um, and, and like to talk about power is as a relationship, um, which basically means, you know, our ability to achieve purpose, our ability to to achieve our stated goals often has to do not just with ourselves, but the relationships um, within which we build our power through mutual commitments to one another to achieve an outcome. And, and so, um, so first of all, when we're thinking about distributing power, that means enabling others to join with us um, to exercise their skills or, or, you know, the power that they bring in terms of the assets that they have to bring to bear. Um, and of course, within a system, many different actors have many unique different assets. This differs from a definition of power where um, it's the senior leader uh, who has a position of authority. And I would note the difference in, in how I'm thinking about the more senior hierarchical model, uh, a senior leadership model, uh, where that authority is an asset. In other words, a senior leader has decision-making um, authority, for instance, or may be able to decide uh, where resources are allocated within an organization. And those are assets. And so by combining and using those unique assets in a position of authority with other assets throughout the organization, um, for instance, a frontline leader, um, you know, right now in healthcare, um, you know, we, we certainly couldn't be treating COVID without the folks on the front lines. They bring very technical knowledge, experience with patients. And, um, and you need both to be able to um, function, for example, as a health system, senior leaders allocating PPE, figuring out where to put its resources while frontline folks bring to bear their assets. And, and to, to achieve purpose, you have to come up with creative and strategic ways to, to get the best out of the people um, uh, and the assets and the commitment that they bring to achieving that purpose. So that's what we mean by distributing power. All right. Well, change is a fact of life, um, and that's something that the coronavirus has made abundantly clear. And I'm curious about what your advice is for dealing with change on a personal level in a positive way. Oh, sure. Um, Well, certainly our well-being um, as individuals is critical to our ability to continue to to function effectively in our day-to-day and encountering change. And so... 
I would I would start a little bit outside of my own area of expertise and more in a place of of um, of mental health in terms of thinking about the things that that bring you um, a sense of calm, uh, a sense of um, the you know courage and ability to feel uh, like you have you know, the opportunity to, to act. Um, and that could be breathing, meditation. It could be conversations with people who are sources of support. It could be um, just locating in your body where you're feeling a sense of tension or anxiety, being outside, exercising. Everybody has sort of their different coping mechanisms, learning to name your emotions um, and, and say them to yourselves and to others to see sort of what's underneath, um, what's going on for you. Again, all those fears of, of loss or frustration and anger and, and just being able to, as I said earlier, hug that, (laughs) see that. Um, I think those are some of the places to really start in terms of, um, our own readiness to encounter change. And certainly as then shifting to a position of leadership, you know, if, if we expect others to, to, to do and behave differently, then part of that means our readiness, not only to model that, but our readiness to support others as they go through that experience of the psychology of change. And to remember that we're going to see that resistance. It's not personal. Our work is to enable other people to come through that process um, with empathy and love and understanding uh, even if sometimes that means a loving kick in the pants, right? So, <laughs> um, yeah. but to do that with, uh, you know, a deep appreciation for the person, as opposed to seeing them as a problem to be solved, we really want to see one another as possibilities waiting to happen and the, our own growth that will occur as a result of of coming to one another with that ad- attitude. Hmm. Um, and this is kind of a policy wonks question, I guess, but uh, this psychology of change framework that you developed was originally intended to improve our global healthcare systems in, in a way. And so I'm curious about how you would like to see this framework used in the context of the many urgent changes that we need to make to our hospital systems during the coronavirus crisis. I mean, now is the time. This is an enormous opportunity uh, across healthcare systems to break the rules, to get rid of old rules that we don't need, um, to get things done quickly, um, and then to redesign with our long, not just our short term, but our long term aspirations for the healthcare system. So, if you know folks who are working on helping improve the healthcare workforces. Um, well-being and joy that that they receive instead of burnout from um, the system within which they work. Now is the time to redesign with that in mind, so that when we're yeah. tending in the short term to people's uh, to staff members' well-being, we're putting that into place for the long term. Um, when we are thinking about how to address um, Corona, we're putting into place quality improvement and learning methods so we can see how to provide the best possible care over time. And that that culture of improvement is a part of how we do business everywhere within the health system. Um, When we're thinking about how to lower costs and use telehealth, we're paying close attention to uh, the metrics for, you know, the outcomes for patients and improved um, uh, lived experience uh, in the encounter of care. Um, 
and so on and so on and so on. And so now is actually a very disruptive moment with a lot of fast change. It's very difficult to manage. However, it's also an enormously um, like wonderful opportunity to um, to actually build the system that we uh, we hope for for ourselves, for our loved ones, and for our colleagues. Yeah, what a time we live in. Um, as a final question, do you have any words of wisdom for students and young leaders who are hoping to create change? Words of wisdom? Um, <laughs> I don't consider myself per se uh, a guru, but I, I would. I mean, I guess I'd say to anyone, including my own children, um, just just to find joy um, and and to share love. Uh, and if 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 you've had a day where you've found some joy and you've shared some love, uh, it's a good day. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Kate. And to our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you'll join us for our next episode, and if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.